Hey there, Whiskey Noobs. I was actually editing the first draft of this episode when I noticed that it is set to release on Christmas Day. So whether or not you're actually listening to it on Christmas Day, I wanted to take this opportunity to say Merry Christmas to those of you who celebrate it. And I want to thank you guys all so much for such an awesome year. 2022 was the first full year of Whiskey Noobs. We hit our one-year milestone in 2022, and we have many more milestones to come. So I just wanted to say thank you to all of you guys who have supported the show, who have liked the content, shared the content, and listened listen to every episode. So I just wanted to take that opportunity to say Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. To all my Christians out there who listen to this podcast, please take a moment to remember the reason we celebrate this season and enjoy your holidays, enjoy your time off work if you have it, and of course, enjoy this episode. What is up, Whiskey Noobs? Today we have yet another Q&A, FAQ, whatever you want to call it, question and answer episode of the Whiskey Noobs podcast. Before we get to that, I am your host, Chris, and I'm super excited to dig into these questions that you guys have for me. So as always, you can submit these questions through my Instagram story. I post a sticker every Wednesday, and you can submit a question through that sticker on Wednesday on my Instagram story at whiskey underscore noobs. So without further ado, as I mentioned, we have a ton of questions to get to. I'm not even going to do the mystery review for this episode because there are so many questions. So let's get to the first few, which I will answer in long form, and then we will get to the lightning round with the questions that I will just answer very rapidly. The first question that we have for today, do you think the bourbon with the best marketing story drives the price up? Absolutely, I do. The marketing behind a bourbon is going to drive the price up, and I wanted to talk about this one a little bit more in-depth than the lightning round questions because it's such a hot topic right now, especially with allocated bourbons just becoming so incredibly popular. You've got all kinds of people, including myself, standing outside of stores before they open. So what's the deal with the marketing? Here's the thing. As in any industry, the product with the best marketing is going to sell the most units. It's going to do the best. That is and probably always will be the case. But I, the problem that I have with this is when people use that in order to hate on products, in order to hate on um, the product that does have the good marketing and say that it's crappy product that just has great marketing. I disagree with that. I think in order to really, really blow up, like let's say the Buffalo Trace Distillery has, you have to have great marketing, of course, which Buffalo Trace does have. And you have to have great product. And I think, from in my opinion, one of the things that really propelled Buffalo Trace was not just the great marketing. It was the great product. Of course, they sponsor like Joe Rogan nowadays, and they're huge. But the, the good product is what established them that reputation that won them all of the love that they get nowadays. You hear people talk all the time about how, you know, Weller used to be easy to come by. All these Buffalo Trace bottles used to be easy to come by, and now they're not. The thing about that is, sure, the marketing probably got a little bit better. The exposure probably got a little bit better. But I think people also started realizing, hey, this is really good whiskey. And as the bourbon industry in America grew, so did the love for Buffalo Trace. I'm just using them as an example. But my point being... These ones that get the really high secondary prices, the ones that become allocated, what I see a lot of the time when I try an allocated whiskey is, in my personal opinion, it typically tastes like it should cost more than it costs, at least more than it costs in Ohio. Definitely not more than it costs in the secondary market. That's not what I'm talking about. It tastes like it should cost more than it does at its retail price. 
And I think that's what leads to it becoming allocated because you basically have something that people are getting cheaper than they think they should get it. And so they just keep buying it. And then it drives the price way up on the secondary market because you can't find it anywhere else. So that's my opinion on that. It's my long-winded way of saying, yes, marketing absolutely drives the price up. The product with the best marketing is probably going to sell the most units. But especially in the whiskey industry, especially in the the tier of whiskey drinkers who actually are looking for notes, actually looking to enjoy the whiskey, you have to have a good product. You can't just have the good marketing. Now, in the tier of whiskey drinkers who are just mixing, and I'm not belittling these people at all. I'm just saying there's a separate faction of people who just mix with Coke, mix with 7-Up, don't care a whole lot about the notes. Sure, maybe you could get away with good marketing and people won't notice because they're going to mix it. We see this happen with tequila all the time. Crappy tequilas get used in margaritas when they're using you know, just your run-of-the-mill margarita mix at a bar because nobody really notices. They're not really worried about what type of tequila is going to be in there. You'll see the same thing with whiskey, but in the tier of like the, the tier of whiskey, I don't know why I'm saying tier, but in the, in the faction of people who collect whiskey, who enjoy it for the notes, who have had multiple different types of whiskey and have learned kind of what they like, what they don't like, you have to have a good whiskey in order to get that good hype behind you. I stand by the fact that this is what happened with Buffalo Trace bourbon, not like the whole distillery, but the bourbon as as it is just the bourbon Buffalo Trace, is that it's worth more than the $26 that you pay at the store. I think it might be $27 now. It's worth more than that. It's a really good bourbon for that price. It's not worth what you pay on the secondary market, but that's what makes people go crazy over it. So that that's my long-winded way of saying I think there is a good reason that price goes up. I also think there are bad reasons that price goes up. And to be completely honest with you guys, I don't really pay secondary prices. I haven't yet. I don't intend to anytime soon. I would probably have to have just a dumb amount of money that I very much do not have in order to be the type of person who pays secondary prices. Because allocated stuff for me, I really enjoy the thrill of the hunt. I enjoy trying to hunt it down, but I'm not paying those secondary type of prices that you see for a lot of that stuff. Now, moving on to the next question, we have, what is the best whiskey in most stores under $40? Now, I'm sure you guys know I have pretty much alternating favorites of whiskey in each category at any given moment. So I'm going to pick some of my favorites in the sub $40 range at this moment in time. They, of course, change and fluctuate. But let's talk scotch first. As I always openly admit, I am less well-versed in scotch and Irish whiskey than I am in bourbon, mainly because that's, bourbon is just the content that people were asking for. And so that's the content that I made the most of, and that is where I really, really started to learn a lot about my flavor preferences. But let's start with scotch. I love Monkey Shoulder at, I think, about $35, so just underneath that $40 mark. I really enjoy it. I think Glenfiddich 12 years is a little bit over that $40 mark, or I would mention it. But um, Monkey Shoulder, I think, is a really great beginner scotch, really easy to drink. I have stood by it basically as long as I've had this podcast because I really enjoy it. And I think it's a great welcome into the nice, easy, smooth sipping style of scotch. Uh, it's not going to be too flashy. It's not peated, so it's not going to bring that intense smoke that you get with some of the peated scotches. But it will just it, it will just welcome you into the world of scotch a little bit. Now, moving over to Irish whiskey. I think I'm going to throw a curveball here because I have reignited my love for a lost love, and that is Jameson Black Barrel. Um, 
I love Jameson Black Barrel, and I don't think it gets noticed because obviously Jameson is like the best-selling Irish whiskey, like normal Jameson, and people think of it as kind of the Jack Daniels of Irish whiskey. I myself have in the past, and you don't think of it as a serious whiskey for serious whiskey drinkers most of the time. If I'm being totally honest, a lot of people do not, myself included at times. So I think for that reason, Jameson Black Barrel gets overlooked a little bit, but I love Jameson Black Barrel. I think it has so much more intense, better, sweeter flavors than run-of-the-mill Jameson has. And it comes in just under that $40 mark. I think it's about $37 in Ohio. And I really enjoy it for that price. I can't believe I don't have a bottle on my shelf right now. Um, I would mention probably, as a cheaper alternative, I would probably mention Tullamore Dew. It's one of my favorite, very inexpensive Irish whiskeys. And then on the higher end, I'd probably mention Redbreast. Not that you asked for those, but just to, to mention that Jameson just happens to fall right at that price point, and I just so happened to have recently had it again uh, and just remembered how much I enjoyed it. So Jameson Black Barrel, right under that $40 mark. I think it gets overlooked a lot. Check it out if you have not already. Now, moving over into the category of American whiskey slash bourbon, we have another one that I kind of recently tried again and was like, man, I forgot how good this was. And so it's on my mind, and I'm going to tell you about it. And that's Maker's Mark 46. It's also right in that mid to high 30 price range, I believe, just under the $40 mark. I really enjoy it. And it just, it has nice, sweet, welcoming flavors. Just a little bit of punch, which a lot of people, I especially those that I've talked with, tend to enjoy if they lean towards the bourbons. If they really don't like the scotches and the irish whiskeys it's because they like the little bit of kick that bourbon tends to have to it at least in my experience this is speaking in generalities there are obviously still people out there who love the smooth soft sweet bourbons as well myself included depending on the type of mood that i'm in but maker's mark has just that little bit of kick the 46 specifically has that little bit of kick and a lot of extra flavor to back it up with that kick so i really enjoy maker's 46 as well so in each of those categories, those are what I would recommend. Um, if I throw a rye out there, just to throw a rye out there, this one's super hard to get your hands on, but I love Sazerac rye. Um, it's, I don't drink a lot of ryes, so it's one of the only ones in this price range that I feel comfortable recommending. Some people don't like it. I really do enjoy it. So I guess that's all that I have to say about that. Moving on to the next question. Should I just buy a new bottle every time I go to the store, or should I look for something that I think I'll like? I remember why I selected this one to give a more in-depth answer for, and that is because the answer really depends. If you are new to whiskey, if you are, I should say, relatively new, you've tried a few bottles, you've had some that you've liked more than others, um, maybe you've had a dozen bottles in your collection and you've said, ah, I liked this one more than that one. I like this one. Maybe single malts are my thing. I don't know. On that level, I personally would continue buying anything that sounds interesting. Um, and I would just make sure that it is something that is affordable to me. When I start to talk about, okay, figure out what you like and then buy what you like. That's typically if you've been living in the $30 price range and you're going to move to the $50 price range, I say, start with something that you think you're going to like that way you enjoy it but if you're just still trying to learn and you're in that $30 price range and you're going for another bottle in that $30 price range go buy a bottle for 30 bucks that just seems interesting maybe you heard something about it maybe it's completely random and it just looked cool whatever and you'll learn more about what it is that you like 
Then once you start to get more experienced, once you start to really nail down, yeah, this is the category that I like. And for whatever reason, you decide you're going to move up in price. Maybe the time has just come. Maybe you've got the money now. Maybe it's for a special occasion, especially for special occasions. That is when I really like to try to predict what I'm going to like. And I still do this. When I jump out of my typical price range, I'm like, okay, let's try to get something that we're probably going to like. Because even if it has a cool label, even if you've heard people talk about it, if it's not something that is your palette, then you're just kind of wasting your money. Maybe you're buying it as like a status symbol, or maybe you just truly didn't think about it, and you're like, oh, people say they like it, but it's not something that you like. That would just be a shame because you'd probably be wasting your money, and in that price range, it probably is something that somebody else really likes, but you're just not getting the full experience out of it. So... In essence, if you're jumping out of your price range for your special occasion bottles, for moving into the next price range, etc., that's when I like to try to predict what it is that I'm going to like. If you're not to that point yet, if you're not to the point where you have a good idea of what it is that you like, then I recommend sticking with the lower budget range and just try to figure out what it is that you do like and buy those random bottles. Buy something because it looks cool. Make sure you see what it is. Is it a bourbon? Is it a scotch? Is it an Irish whiskey? Is it finished? Is it finished in port casks? Is it finished in sherry casks? Learn about it. And then when you jump to that next bottle, you can have a really good idea of what it is that you want. That's my best advice for that. And that is advice that I myself live by. I really like to emphasize that to people because I just feel I've always been about getting the bang for your buck and I feel that's the best way to do it. So this next question we actually got in some shape or form twice and so I thought this definitely has to be one that we answer long form and that was the first question was what started your whiskey exploration and then somebody else asked what got you into whiskey to begin with and what's kept you in. So I think that's a great one to answer. I do have an episode called my whiskey journey so far. That is episode number 43 of the Whiskey Noobs podcast, my whiskey journey so far. So I go way more in depth there. But to talk about what got me into whiskey to begin with, there are a few different things that I attribute to the reason I got into whiskey. So the first one and probably the most obvious would be influence from my father. My dad has always been into the whiskey and the cigars. And, you know, you grow up, you see your dad doing those things, and you think to yourself, I want to get into those things as well. He makes these things look very enjoyable. Maybe I should try them. And that, in essence, is what happened to me. Now, that especially happened with cigars. And the second thing that I think got me into whiskey is, in fact, cigars. So, to be entirely honest, my dad wasn't as big into whiskey as he is now or as I am now whenever I initially got into whiskey. I think we kind of fed off each other once I got into whiskey and we both got way more into it. Uh, but at the time, he was very big into just like Jack Daniels or other sorts of bourbons. He'd drink them on the rocks. He'd drink them straight. He'd drink them mixed, etc. But what really started to push me into whiskey was I got into cigars and I saw people always say, you know, you should pair cigars with whiskey. And at the time that I got into cigars, I was 18 because you were allowed to smoke cigars at 18 at that time. And I got into cigars. And then by the time I got to 21, I was like, I'm super ready to try pairing these with some whiskey. I had had a bit of whiskey before that my dad had let me have, which is in fact legal. And I had tried it and I thought, I want to try to get into this with cigars. And up to that point, I really had not enjoyed whiskey at in much capacity. So I did start to do that. 
I started to get into cigars and I started to try to pair whiskey with cigars. And I live in a very cold state most of the year. It's really cold in Ohio, uh, especially that winter time just tends to last way too long. And I don't like the cold. So I wanted something I could do inside. Well, guess what you can do inside? You can drink whiskey inside. So I started to pair it with cigars. I started to try to drink it more because you could do it inside. Um, and when I say drink it more, I want to be clear. I'm talking about doing tastings more often, not just like guzzling whiskey. Um, and at the time, to be honest with you, I couldn't even get through a full glass of whiskey. So it was not about the intoxication. It was about trying to learn how to taste it. And I did mix it a lot at the time. I would mix it with 7-Up mostly. And I noticed myself starting to enjoy mixing less and less and less, which is one of my tips. It's episode two of this podcast. And so I started finding myself wanting to mix it less and less. And at the same time, I would obviously just try the brute force method. And this is Probably what got me into whiskey the most was the brute force method of I'm going to drink it straight until it tastes good. And I continue to try doing that, continue to try doing that until I had monkey shoulder that I really enjoyed. And uh, I think it was before monkey shoulder, actually, I had Buffalo Trace that was somebody else's bottle. They let me try it. And it was the first time that I took a sip of whiskey and was like, hey, wait a minute, that tasted good. I actually enjoyed that. Then I had Monkey Shoulder, and Monkey Shoulder was a bottle that I bought for myself, and it was the first bottle that I had that I kept coming back to the bottle and saying, I actually think I enjoy this. This is actually good. And from there, I just kind of continued to hone my skills like anybody does. I looked it up online. I kept watching videos about it, kept trying to learn more about it, learn more from friends, um, from people you meet online, etc. And that's kind of how I got into it. Now, what has kept me in the hobby of drinking whiskey? Well, one thing's for certain, the podcast definitely has because I have a bunch of people who like to hear me talk about whiskey, which I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful for. But I have a bunch of people who want to hear me talk about it, so I'm going to keep buying it. I'm going to keep talking about it. Now, on a more philosophical level, maybe something that's a little bit more relatable for those of you listening, the the variety has really kept me in whiskey. The variety of it, the fact that If you get bored in bourbons, you can go to scotches. If you get bored in normal bourbons, you can go to finished bourbons. There's just so much variety that I don't think you could ever really get bored as long as you're continually changing what it is that you're drinking and trying to learn more about it. And then on top of that, there's a great culture. Even if you're not an influencer, even if you're not trying to be an influencer on social media like myself, you can still experience that culture on social media. You can follow the influencers like me, like the other influencers that I really enjoy following. And you can be a part of that community, be a part of that culture, and that is also super enjoyable. It's a great culture that's usually, usually very welcoming to people. I always try to be welcoming. Sometimes people are intimidating, and I totally get that, but there are a lot of really welcoming, really good people out there putting out good content, and it's a great culture to be around. Then there's also the historical culture of whiskey. You know, whiskey goes back all the way basically to the founding of America, and then it goes back way farther in Scotland and in Ireland. Whiskey just has a rich history that's a lot of fun to learn about. So the vast amount of information, culture, types of whiskey, etc., is, is undoubtedly what has kept me in this hobby. All right, moving on to the last full-length question that I'm going to answer for this episode. What is the difference between all of the bottles, single barrel, small batch, etc.? So I noted down a few of the different kinds as well as those ones that you just mentioned, and I'm just going to basically run through those kinds um, because... 
there are so many different types of whiskey out there. We could continue for days and days and days. But I'm just going to mention the ones you mentioned as well as um, a couple of different proofs, basically, that I will talk about as well. So single barrel whiskey. Single barrel differs from normal whiskey in that it is whiskey that comes from a single barrel. Now, I remember the first time I heard this, I was super confused because I was like, all whiskey comes from a barrel. What on earth are you talking about? Well, a lot of times with non-single barrel whiskeys, especially the big names that are known for having that really good, really consistent flavor, it's nowhere near a single barrel. They're mixing up huge batches of all of these barrels all these different barrels in order to get a consistent flavor because every barrel definitely tastes different. And you can see this if you buy a couple different single barrels from different barrels. You'll totally see that every barrel tastes different. So with your run-of-the-mill, Buffalo Trace, Jim Beam, Wild Turkey, they are mixing together a bunch of barrels. Sometimes they're mixing together different mash bills. Four Roses is known for this. They have different mash bills that they mix up to give them the flavors that they get once they're all mixed together. So it's not one barrel being filtered and put into a bottle. It's a bunch of barrels being mixed together filtered and put into a bottle with single barrel you have one barrel you open up that barrel filter it if you dilute it you dilute it put it into the bottle and that is a single barrel bottle that is a bottle that just came from one barrel now moving on to small batch small batch is a similar idea it is that you are blending less of these barrels together in order to do things in batches you can still get some variation between different batches of small batch and the idea is that you can blend them together to try to create a little bit unique of a flavor and a little bit of a a better flavor i guess by blending the proper barrels together is the idea with small batch. Now, I also noted down barrel proof, cask strength, and full proof because I wanted to talk about those briefly. I think I have on other episodes, but just very quickly. So barrel proof and cask strength both mean the same thing. They mean that whether it came from a single barrel or a bunch of barrels blended together, the whiskey left those barrels, was blended together, filtered, and put into a bottle. It was not diluted with water, so they didn't bring the proof down at all. That's for barrel proof and for cask strength. Full proof, what it typically means, and this comes from Weller full proof a lot of the time is where I see it used the most, it means that the whiskey comes out of the barrel and is proofed down to the proof that it was when it went into the barrel. So it's a little bit counterintuitive because if you set a glass of whiskey out, the alcohol evaporates off, but in the barrel... A lot of times the whiskey gets stronger, depending on your climate, but the vast, vast majority of the time the whiskey gets stronger and the water evaporates out of the barrel. The alcohol gets even stronger in it. So it goes into the barrel for Weller at 114 proof for Weller full proof and it comes out of the barrel at a higher proof. Then they proof it down to 114 to get that consistent proof. That's why Weller full proof is always 114, whereas anything barrel proof or cask strength, the proof of that bottle will vary depending on the batch or if it's a single barrel depending on the barrel. All right, that is all we have for the full-length questions, so thank you to those of you who submitted those. I am going to, as quickly as I can, run through our lightning round questions. Number one, have I ever tried Garrison Brothers? Yes, I've tried it, and I liked it. Maybe a 30-second review will be coming soon on the social medias. Number two, what's a great 30-year that won't break the bank? I have never heard of a 30-year that would not break the bank for me, at least, but maybe if you're wealthy enough, it won't. But 30 years, very expensive. Number three, have I tried Lost Irish? I have not tried that. 
Number four, Van Winkle worth the hype. And then somebody else asked, is Pappy worth the dollars? I think is what they meant to type. Uh, I had Old Rip Van Winkle once. I loved it. I really enjoyed it. But I don't think any of them are probably worth the secondary price. But I haven't had any others. So maybe I'm wrong and it's some magical bourbon. I personally most likely would not pay the insane secondary prices that Pappy gets on the secondary market. Moving on to the next question, what was my first impression of an Isla whiskey or my thoughts on them now? I'm going to generalize this and assume that you just mean peated whiskey because there are some Islas that aren't peated and there are some scotches that are peated but are not Isla whiskeys. But for peated whiskey, I thought it was insanely hard to drink at first. I did not really like it, but I saw how some people could because I was like, well, there's a lot going on here, but I just don't enjoy it. Um, as my palate developed a little bit more, as I continue to come back to them and acquire the taste for them, I do like Isla scotches, peated scotches nowadays. Um, I typically drink them, though, when I want more of a challenge, when I want a flavor bomb, and I really want to be challenged by the palate of the of the whiskey. So I do enjoy them now. I did not always enjoy them. If you're trying to enjoy them, there is hope for you. Moving on, what is the best bottom shelf bourbon? I said probably Benchmark 8. Moving on, how many bottles is too many bottles? I will let you know if I ever get there, but I haven't gotten there yet, especially if they are bottles that are mostly full and are not going bad. Maybe that's too many when you have bottles that are going bad. Next, can I get a hold of Blue Note 17? I can't get a hold of any Blue Note at the moment in Ohio. Next, uh, this person says they are new to my channel. What are my thoughts on Prize Fight Irish Whiskey? I have not had Prize Fight. Next question, what are my favorite movies to watch while I'm sipping whiskey? I said any and all movies, to be honest with you. Um, I like a good action movie with a glass of whiskey because you feel gruff, you feel gritty, you can relate to the main character, whatever, whatever it is. Also, I like a good comedy because you're drinking whiskey. If you've had more than one glass, you're probably loosened up at least a little bit. I'm not recommending you get drunk and watch a comedy, but you're loosened up a little bit. I mean, it just works with every movie. It's whiskey. It's great. It works with all sorts of different things. Everything except for driving. Don't drink and drive. Moving on to the next question. Can I do a review of Cream of Kentucky? If I ever find it, I will absolutely do a review of it. Next question. What percentage of Pappy Van Winkles is wheat? Nobody knows exactly like what the mash bills are. People have speculated the mash bills, but it is a weeded bourbon, so it's probably about the same as the percentage that you would normally have of rye. I'm going to guess in the low teens. People have definitely speculated. You can find some speculations online, um, but they haven't disclosed their exact recipe. The next question, how do you know what's dropping and when? Uh, different distilleries have different drops. So like Van Winkle hits Ohio in early December through the lottery basically every year. But more in general, you can try calling your local stores and asking what they know if they've heard anything about it. Some stores are really good about this. Some stores are really terrible about this. Or you can try Googling. You can try learning a little bit on like Reddit, Facebook, or just my Instagram page, other people's Instagram page. It's a lot of the type of thing that is discussed in the comments quite often. Um, so you can try that out. And that's probably the best way to try to figure that out. Next question, have I tried Pendleton rye? Uh, so if you're calling normal Pendleton a rye because it is Canadian, like sometimes people just call Canadians rye, then yes, that is episode number 33. Um, if you mean their 1910 rye, then I have not had that. Next question, what whiskey has pwned my taste buds, this person said. Uh, the first time I had Rare Breed, it definitely pwned my taste buds. Rare Breed is a flavor bomb. It is super strong. It is barrel proof, and it lit me up the first time that I had it. Of course, now I love Rare Breed. If you've heard my reviews of it, you know that's the case. 
Moving on, what's the best glass to drink bourbon out of? That is 100% a matter of preference. I prefer Glencairn's, but as we saw with the Glencairn versus Lowball episode, Lowballs are just as good. Uh, if I want to look a little bit more fancy, a little bit more, I don't know, bravado, maybe that's a, a bad thing to want. Uh, but if I want to, I'll use a Lowball glass, but a lot of the time I use Glencairn's because I don't really care a whole lot about how I look and I just prefer them. Moving on to the next question, what is a good cheap bourbon option? Uh, and then somebody else asked, I'm new to whiskey. Which one truly has that smooth taste that I can ease into? I group these together because I would just say for cheap bourbon and then also for smooth taste, you can ease into Larceny. That's episode number 52. Also, I recently did a 30-second review of 1792 Small Batch, which some people I learned from that review absolutely hate, but a lot of people also absolutely love it. Myself included, I think it's very smooth. Maybe even a little bit smoother than Larceny. I would have to try them in a blind to decide that, though. Next question. If I couldn't drink whiskey, what would I drink? I think I've said this before. I'd probably drink tequila or get into generally just mezcals. Um, I enjoy tequila quite a bit, so I would probably give that a try next. It would probably be the next thing I would try after whiskey. The next one, not a question, but thanks for talking about bottles that are accessible. Hey, you are absolutely welcome. I try to do that on purpose, and I just want everybody to keep in mind, I like allocated bottles for the hunt, for the thrill of it, for the fun, but you absolutely don't need allocated bottles to have a respectable collection. There's so many really good bottles out there. That's why I try not to hype up allocations any more than they already are. I just really enjoy Buffalo Trace, so I do talk about that sometimes. But let's move on to the next question. What's the best bourbon to bring to Thanksgiving? Uh, I said any that you're willing to share with family. I think there's another Thanksgiving question coming up here in a little bit, though. The next question, do you combine the last shot of bottles to make an infinity bottle? I don't do that anymore. I have in the past, and then we also have an infinity bottle for the Whiskey Noobs podcast I should probably review here soon. Next question, this person says they just bought Buffalo Trace Bourbon Cream. Any suggestions for cocktails? Uh, personally, I don't have a great cocktail to make with it. I actually enjoy Buffalo Trace Bourbon Cream. I just like it straight or on ice. Next question, why is Buffalo getting so expensive? Uh, I referred back to the, actually the first episode of this podcast, which was great marketing. They have great marketing. They are a little bit better than the retail price would indicate they are. I think that you get a bang for your buck if you buy it at retail. And so it just blows up on the secondary market or in states where they don't have controlled pricing. Luckily enough in Ohio, if I do find Buffalo Trace, it, has, it is at the state controlled price. My thoughts on Tiger Thick. I have never had it, um, but I looked it up, and it's a Brendan Schaub whiskey. For those of you who know who Brendan Schaub is, um, celebrity whiskeys tend to be overpriced. I haven't had it, so I don't want to say that it is, but that just happens to be a trend with celebrity whiskeys. But uh, maybe I will try it at some point. Moving on to the next question. Is Buffalo Trace better than Maker's Mark? In my opinion, it is probably not better than Maker's 46, but better than run-of-the-mill Maker's Mark, in my personal opinion. Next question. What's the reason that Evan Williams' single barrel went to Kentucky only? I actually had to look this one up, but I read that Evan Williams' bottled and bond and Evan Williams' 1783 both pull from the same barrels as Evan Williams' single barrel, and they sell better. Other than that, I don't know. Uh, this is just what I found online relatively quickly because I hadn't heard about that, actually, so that's pretty interesting. Moving on to the next question, is any of the Pappy bourbons overrated? Forward slash, somebody else asked, is Pappy worth the trouble? I'm sure that some are overrated. I've only had Old Rip Van Winkle. Um, and then as I mentioned earlier, I also put this for this question. Hunting allocations, I want to be so clear, hunting for allocated bourbons is a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to try to do. I love the thrill of the chase. I love trying to get something, especially when I have a little bit extra money in my pocket. I'll go out and try to get something rare. 
But if it's trouble to you, if it's causing you trouble, if you are anxious about not getting the bottles that you want, it's probably not worth it. it I don't think allocations are really worth trouble. If you enjoy the hunt, it's definitely worth it because for me, it's a win-win. I Even when I don't get something good, I'm like, oh, that was still fun. I still had a chance. It's kind of like gambling, but you don't lose any money. You only have the chance of buying something that's a pretty good value as long as you have the money for it. So if it's that to you, then I say do it. If it's not, then I say don't. Um, and sure, Pappy Van Winkle could be overrated, um, as can many allocated bourbons. Next question, $50 and above whiskey, not worth the money. Um, I don't like to say that any whiskey is totally not worth the money because everybody's palate is different. So I don't really have anything specific for that one. The next question, have I had any Australian whiskey? I have not, but I'm increasingly interested in finding some Australian whiskey. I get asked about it a lot, and I also follow some pretty solid accounts from Australia. I think I'm going to have to try some here soon. Next question, have I had new riff, and what are my thoughts? Yeah, I had it definitely once at a bar, maybe twice at a bar. I liked it. I didn't write down any notes or anything like that, but I generally thought it was enjoyable. The next question, how does Ezra Brooks or Evan Williams stack up against bigger brands for you? I like Ezra Brooks. Um, it's actually also one of my dad's favorites that I mentioned. Uh, you know, my dad likes to drink a lot of bourbons. He likes Ezra. I like Ezra. And Evan Williams has some of the best budget bourbon or best bourbon in the budget price range, I should say. I love Evan Williams bottled and bond. So both great brands. Next question, what's the best bottom shelf bourbon forward slash somebody else asked the best cheap whiskey in general and with Coke? Um, it depends on what you consider bottom shelf. I think I mentioned this earlier, probably benchmark eight It is a great bottom shelf whiskey. It's very cheap. I think it's like $11. Moving on to the next question. What's the best whiskey or bourbon for whiskey, gingers, and old fashions? That's heavily a matter of preference. Typically speaking, the more rye in the mash bill, the more spicy it's going to be. Weeded bourbons are typically a little bit sweeter. The next question, I would like to sample different bourbons. Which bourbon club would you recommend? I honestly do not have any experience with any bourbon clubs, so I cannot give a recommendation there. Moving on, where do I find my Buffalo Trace in Ohio? I find it very carefully, but you do have to hunt it. Once again, call your local liquor store owners. Maybe they can give you some insight. The next question, have I ever peed in a closet because I thought it was a bathroom? I'm not sure if that's a serious question or not, but I can't say that I have. The next question, Eagle Rare or Buffalo Trace? Usually Buffalo Trace, but if I want a little bit more of that aged spice, that barrel kick, then I will drink Eagle Rare instead. The next question, do I like blended whiskeys like Crown? TX is very good. Yes, I have had TX, and that is episode number 70. Moving on, do I feel cheated when I find out a bottle I enjoy is MGP? Not at all. I don't feel cheated at all. I think it takes a lot of skill to be a good blender. I think Barrel Craft Spirits has proven this time and time again. I do feel cheated if it's a company that tries to sell me on it not being sourced, tries to make it seem like it's their juice and it's not, then I feel cheated. The next question, what are five good bourbons for a noob? For this one, I said, how about eight good bourbons for a noob? Check out Budget Bourbon March Madness on TikTok, and I believe it's also on Instagram, but there's a playlist on TikTok to make it easier to find. Next question, what whiskeys have I had, if any, that were greater than $100 and worth buying? Now, for the sake of transparency, I obviously spend a lot less time talking about 
greater than $100 whiskeys. I spend a lot of time talking about affordable stuff and stuff for newer people. So I don't have a lot of great recommendations in the over $100 range. Um, one that I very recently had, and it's just fresh on my mind because I very recently had it, um, was Watershed's Nochino Aged Bourbon. I really enjoyed that. It's a bourbon that's finished in Nochino barrels. I thought it was really good, and I believe it's $100, so I'll just throw that out there. Um, most of barrel stuff is creeping up on the $100 range, and I think most of their stuff is worth the price as well. Uh, those are just literally off the cuff. I didn't even type them out before this episode. Just a couple of ideas. Moving on to the next question. What's the most annoying question to be asked to you? I hate to say any questions annoying because I actually love answering your guys' questions. But if I have to pick one, it would probably be when people just throw out, how do I get Pappy Van Winkle? Let me tell you something. If I knew how to get it, I would have some behind me in my videos, but I don't own any Van Winkle, so I don't know how to get it. Moving on to the next question, my thoughts on Amador. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. Amador Rye. I haven't had it. Moving on, best starting whiskeys for Thanksgiving taste test with the fam. Uh, this was the next Thanksgiving question that it, I mentioned earlier on. Might be a bit late to answer a Thanksgiving question, but I love wild turkey. I think some people think it's dumb to do wild turkey on Thanksgiving. I think it's funny and I enjoy it. So wild turkey is my go-to and rare breed if you want something a little bit nicer. Moving on, Blood Oath. I haven't had it and that's all I can really say about that. Are store-bought barrels always a good play? Often, as long as the store, or in the case of Ohio, the state and whoever they hire to do it, knows what they're doing, they can certainly be great picks. They can certainly be worth the money. Not always, and especially it seems that you know they start to charge these pretty crazy prices for store picks because they're like, oh, it's this really good single barrel. And so maybe it's not. But a lot of the times, it can be a good choice to get a store pick, and it can be a great choice if you can't get your hands on allocations. Moving on to the next one. Have I tried Basil Hayden Toast? I have not. Next question. What is the best sipping whiskey? This is a very loaded question, and I talk about all kinds of really good sipping whiskeys. Um, I'm just going to throw Buffalo Trace out there since I seem to be talking about them a lot this episode. Next question. What are you pouring tomorrow? And this is back when tomorrow was Thanksgiving. Um, I ended up doing scotch because my brother-in-law enjoys scotch. So when I was with my wife's family, I did scotch. And then when I was at my family's, my dad, as I mentioned, loves bourbon. So I did bourbon with my dad. Next question, what's the best bargain bottle under $40 that's not Buffalo Trace? This one, I, I threw out a new curveball that I should have mentioned in the $40 one earlier, but maybe Redwood Empire's Pipe Dream. I really enjoyed that bottle. I'm excited to try more from Redwood Empire. Next question, what is my favorite bourbon? I have no idea. If you've been listening to the podcast for too long, you probably have heard me say this a few times. I am terrible at picking a favorite, and I don't have a great idea of what it would be right now. Next question, do I drink tea on the rocks or straight up or a small cube like this person? I believe they actually did say tea. I don't know if it's a typo or not. Uh, I drink tea on the rocks and straight up. I don't ever do a small ice cube, so maybe I'll have to try that. But I drink hot tea and I drink iced tea. The next question, sticking with the Buffalo Trace Distillery. Stags, Eagle Rare, Weller, E.H. Taylor, and Buffalo Trace or Buffalo Trace and why? So out of all of those, why? Um, I haven't had the Stags. Out of the rest, I like Weller since each one in their lineup has this kind of cool, unique taste to me. I just really enjoy the Weller lineup, but it's also the one I have the most experience with, aside from, of course, Buffalo Trace. Next question, what's the best rye on the market for the dollar? I am not experienced enough in ryes to probably say, but I do love barrel seagrass. It is finished in all these unique barrels, and it gives it really unique flavors. 
Next question, the closest bourbon to Pappy. A lot of people say Weller 12, or there's actually this this mix you can do of different types of Wellers, um, but I haven't had much Pappy, so I can't give you my opinion on that. The next question, what's the best bourbon to buy as a gift for an experienced drinker? One that they haven't had, but that's similar to what they like is my opinion on that. Moving on, where do I rank Buffalo Trace? I'd say it's one of the best if you pay less than $30, but it's severely overhyped and a lot of people pay too much for it, or a lot of people expect way more from it than you're going to get. It's just a really good budget whiskey. Emphasis on budget. The next person says they're having trouble getting clear ice molds. How do you get them clear? Uh, make sure the mold is for clear ice. Make sure it's not just a mold for like ice spheres. That's different. Um, use clean, filtered, and or boiled water. The boiling didn't seem to make a huge difference for me, but those are just tips that people tend to say. Typically, I think it's more on how good the mold is. The next person asks, have I tried Uncle Nearest 1884? I have not. I had the other one in their lineup, but I forget what it is. I think it's like the 1850s, uh, and I enjoyed it. Next question. This person says they live in North Carolina where it's hard to get certain whiskey. How can they build a collection like mine? Ohio's selection of whiskey also is not very great. Focus on what you are able to get, and anytime you're out of state, look for the ones that you can't normally get. I keep a list of stuff that I want to try, but I can't get in my state, and then I look when I'm out of state. The next person asks, what's my favorite bottle under $50? Maybe Four Roses Single Barrel, if it is a good barrel. We mentioned that, you know, with single barrels, every barrel tastes different. But I really enjoy Four Roses Single Barrel. The next question is, online stores for bourbon without getting gouged? Question mark. Uh, I don't buy online, to be entirely honest with you. As I mentioned, a lot of the allocated stuff, I just enjoy the hunt. So I actually haven't bought online before. The next person asks, what's the best way to find allocated bourbons? Local stores hide them in the back is what they said. Um, make friends with the owners. Buy all of your liquor from one store and hope for the best. Uh, in Ohio, basically, it's just hope for the best because everything is state-owned. But like I said, just enjoy the hunt. Don't worry too much about finding allocated stuff. The next person asks, the best unique whiskey for under $25 for a white elephant. Um I don't really know in terms of unique whiskeys for under $25. I think you're going to be pretty limited there. But if you just want a good whiskey, I really like Evan Williams Bottled and Bond, which is very inexpensive. Next person asks, how is Dead Guy Whiskey by Rogue? I've never had that. The next person asks, when bourbon tasting, does best go first, middle, or end? It depends on what you prefer. I like to save the best for last, as long as you drink plenty of water in between to keep your palate clean. Uh, then your palate's warmed up, but hopefully cleaned off with the water. The next question, we're getting close to the end, guys, I promise. The next question is, the best bourbon sold in a flask-style pint bottle? Um, I honestly have no idea. Selections, of, especially of non-fifth size bottles, varies largely by state, and I don't normally buy less than a fifth. Uh, tips for getting hard to find bourbons in Ohio. I'm going to refer you to the above question. Uh, basically hope for the best, enjoy the hunt and don't worry about finding allocated stuff. The best bourbon to sip neat. There are a ton of bourbons to sip neat. Um, wild Turkey, rare breed, four roses, single barrel and Redwood empires pipe dream are a few that I just listed out off the top of my head. The next question is, what's my favorite spirit other than whiskey, and how do I take it? I think I mentioned this earlier, but probably tequila, usually in a cocktail, as a shot, or with soda and lime. Almost to the end, we've got tips on how to start a collection. Episode number 63 is actually all about that. The next question is, why does my dad love 12-year Chivas but hates on Johnny Walker? Uh, I said that it could be because they're slightly different palettes. Uh, Chivas is a little bit lighter, a little bit more floral, or it could just be that they, he doesn't like the brand. 
Moving on, we've got opinions on Grand Old Par 12-year. I have not had that bottle either. The next question is, what's a go-to gift bottle? I don't have a go-to bottle to give somebody as a gift because it depends on the person, but episode 34 talks about how to pick one. The next question is, what is my take on any of the Jack Daniels spinoffs? I'm not sure exactly what you mean by spinoffs. I'll leave it at that. If you want to submit a more specific question, I can absolutely answer that. And the last question We already mentioned it once, but is Pappy worth the hype and the price? The glass that I had of 10-year was worth the hype, but not worth the price. Pappy is overhyped. Pappy is very often overpriced. I really enjoyed the uh, old Rip Van Winkle 10-year, but anything in the Pappy lineup is absolutely overhyped. Okay. Hopefully, I made pretty good time there, but those are all the questions that we got for this episode. Thank you guys all for submitting these questions. Thank you to everybody who submitted the questions. Once again, you can submit them through Instagram on Wednesdays to my Instagram story. But thank you guys all for listening. I will leave you guys with learn to drink, drink to learn. Thank you for listening to this episode of Whiskey Noobs. If you like the show, please make sure to leave a five-star rating or review to help grow the show and get the word out. You can also find more Whiskey Noobs content on Instagram at whiskey underscore noobs and on TikTok at whiskey noobs podcast. If you want to drink right along with me, make sure to join the email list by sending an email to whiskey noobs podcast at gmail.com with a subject line saying email list. You will receive monthly emails with a list of the whiskeys that will be featured throughout the month so that you can buy them ahead of time and drink right along with the show. Once again, thanks for listening to this episode. The Whiskey Noobs podcast does not support underage or otherwise irresponsible consumption of alcohol.